for me, I think a voice and a song in particular carries with it a human experience at its simplest and often its rawest. Music has always been a vehicle for the spirit of people, the spirit of the times and the stories of people. And where we believe those stories, that's empathy in action. And that's where action can begin. And this is Cry Power, my podcast about people who are using what's available to them to change the world. Presented with our friends at Global Citizen, on each episode I'll be sitting down with people who are putting themselves out there to support a cause that's dear to them. I'll be talking to people whose work is making a real difference, musicians, artists, or just some of my heroes. Hello and welcome to another Cry Power. This is Andrew Hosier-Byrne here. Today on the show we have the man who set up the movement with whom we have created this very podcast. He is the founder and chief executive of Global Citizen, Hugh Evans. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us time out of your incredibly busy schedule. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your podcast and thank you for taking the initiative. I think it's absolutely wonderful all the amazing episodes that you've produced are just incredible and so inspiring. Thank you so very well much. Thank you. You were saying you were, you were, you were bouncing from, from Mexico through Canada. You've joined us here today. You've only landed a little while ago, I think. So. That's right. Yeah. yeah, just got back, but happy to be home. No, it's great. It's great. Do you mind if I, if I I'll, t- I'll take us back. Um, I know that the Global Poverty Project was, was set up in 2000, 2008, I believe, Um and Global Citizen itself was founded in 2012. Can you, can you talk to us about how, how, it, how it came to be and how, how it all started? Yeah, so for me, it's been a lifelong journey. It started when I was 12 years old. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, and I remember really vividly one day, in, I think it was like my first few weeks of high school, a lady from an aid organization called World Vision came and spoke at our school about raising money for kids in the developing world. And you're very impressionable when you're that age. Well, I, I was very impressionable. Mm. And, you know, I put up my hand and I said, okay, I'm going to try to fundraise as much as I can. And our school became the highest fundraising school in the country. Mm. And so I won a competition to go to the Philippines to see their work firsthand. Mm-hmm. And there was a night in the Philippines that changed my life forever where we were taken onto a slum in the center of Manila called Smoky Mountain. It's a uh, community that's built on top of a rubbish dump where the whole infrastructure of the community revolves around scavenging. So the kids run after the garbage trucks every day and try to get bits of scrap metal, piece of food and things that they can recycle. And I was placed in the care that night of a guy my own age. We were both 14 at the time. His name is Sonny Boy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, where I'd grown up in middle-class Melbourne in Australia, he had tattoos on his forearm at the age of 14 because he was about to become his gang leader and that was his form of initiation. Right, right. And that night he took me to his house and we cooked this meal together with some food that I brought with me. And when it came time to go to sleep, we just lay down myself, Sonny Boy, and the rest of his family, seven of us in this long line. And I'll never, ever forget lying there that night with the, just lying on the concrete slab with cockroaches crawling all around us and the smell of rubbish because we're lying on top of a garbage dump. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't sleep at all. I just lay awake thinking to myself, it really is pure chance that I was born where I was born and he was born where he was born. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, as Warren Buffett likes to call it, the lottery of life. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that night I wanted to commit my life to this, but I didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so I came back and I 
I saw what Mother Teresa was doing in India and I said to my mum, I want to go and work with Mother Teresa. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds no, silly in no, hindsight, no. Um, but, I, but I, mum said to me, you know, there's no way I'm going to let you go to India. And so I made a deal with her. I said, you know, if I can get a full scholarship so you don't have to pay for it and it's all covered, would you let me go by myself? And she said yes. And so I applied for a scholarship and I, I got this scholarship to go and study at a school in the Himalayan mountains, a, a small school called Woodstock School in Uttarakhand in northern India. And I remember trudging off to the airport, like after I'd got the scholarship and was about to say goodbye to my friends and family, I went through customs immigration. I I sat on the airplane next to this complete stranger. He was this big businessman. And I remember I looked him up in the eyes and I just burst into tears. I was so scared. Mm -hmm. Like it all mm -hmm. of a sudden dawned on me what was coming. And, and that year totally turned my life upside down. I, I think I went to India very much as a self-conscious 15-year-old kid. You're only 15. Yeah. And you went, this was a year in India on, on your own. Yeah. Okay. Um, at a school, um, but yeah, mm -hmm. and um, and I came back with the realization that, you know, two thirds of the world don't live as I lived in Australia. That two thirds of the planet in those days lived in extreme poverty, and in those days, seven hundred million people in India alone were homeless or slum dwellers, which is thirty nine times our population of Australia. And so, I was both moved but incredibly overwhelmed by the sheer scale of it all. Fast forward several years, I um, was studying law in Melbourne, and I'd, I'd just come back from a year and a half living at a at an orphanage for children orphaned by HIV/AIDS in South Africa. And me and my mate Dan, we were both studying at the same university. We had this idea to run this small concert called the Make Poverty History Concert because we're inspired by what what had happened with Live Eight. And this is 2006 when the G um, the G20 was coming through Melbourne and our small concert one day exploded when I got a phone call from Bono and Pearl Jam mm -hmm. who said they wanted to headline our show. Nice. And I thought it was a prank call at the time. Like yeah. I was like, yeah, right. You right. know, that's really cool. Yeah. Come on. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they came on first and sang rocking in the free world by Neil Young. And that day, a million Australians got involved in our campaign and got the make poverty history white armband. Yeah. And we managed to convince the government to come on stage and make an announcement to double foreign aid. And so we secured $6.2 billion in new investments for the eradication of extreme poverty. And off the back of that, I got a phone call from the United Nations here in New York who said that they were, wanted to help us take our work all around the world. Yes, okay. And in those days, I didn't really know what that meant because yes. we were just getting started. Yeah. Um, and how did you, just as a... I mean, you were a law student. You were a law student at the time when yeah. when you organised that that first concert. That's right. Uh, just 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 as a as a as a law student going going about organising a, a music festival like that, it's a huge huge initiative to take, I suppose. In hindsight, yeah, I, I had, it was hard juggling a law degree at the same oh, time. No but, doubt. <laughs> but I I think when you're passionate about something, you find time. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you're you're the perfect example of that with your career. You've just yeah. Thankfully, know. thankfully, I'm not juggling a law degree now. I have to say, but um. That's it's it's but I mean incredible and the make poverty history campaign it was huge you know huge success I mean made made waves you know of course across the world and so after the concert Bono and Pearl Jam um, play Rockin' in the Free World 
the announcement is made, foreign aid is, is doubled. And th- that, I suppose, is, is that what led you to the Global Citizen Festival event that took place here in New York? Well, what happened first was um, one of my dear friends, Simon, who's our co-founder of Global Citizen, we were, we were just at the cinema in, in Melbourne and we went to see An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. And um, I walked out of that and I was not only inspired by the clarity of his message, but I was so inspired by the way he was able to communicate a complex topic of of tackling climate change and carbon abatement and, you know, how do we put a price on carbon and what does that mean for sustainability more broadly and do it so succinctly. And so I said to Simon at the time, I said, okay, why don't we try to do for global poverty what Al Gore has done for climate change? And we, I got, at that stage, I got a scholarship to go to Cambridge in the UK and, and, um, the UN gave us a small grant to open an office in London so Simon and his now wife, Rachel, moved to London and every weekend I would commute down from Cambridge to London and we, would, we were setting up this small office in London and from London is where we really birthed, at that stage it was called the Global Poverty Project. And it was around that time that we started our first big campaign initially on polio eradication because there's a strong link between polio and extreme poverty um, because global health is one of the key indicators of extreme poverty. You've really, if you think about extreme poverty, the building blocks for the eradication of poverty are health, education, water and sanitation, food security, gender equality, the empowerment of, of girls and women. And these building blocks are ultimately what enable people to lift themselves out of poverty. And we saw that polio was 99% eradicated. It was only endemic in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and northern Nigeria and India in those days. And if we could demonstrate to the world that this is a disease that you could actually get rid of, then you could demonstrate that there are actually progress that could be made on malaria, on HIV AIDS, on on so many other um, communicable diseases. And so we, uh, we had this idea to kick off this campaign around the Commonwealth Heads of Government meetings. So we asked the Queen, uh, Queen of England if she would allow us to um, focus the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting on polio. And she said, well, it was through her private secretary, Christopher Geist at the time. She said, well, you have to ask the host country, which in that case was Australia. And so we asked Julia Gillard, who just become the prime minister of Australia. And she said, well, you know, polio, you know, it's, it's a bit of an obscure topic, yes. you know, and she yeah. said, you have to demonstrate that there's young people who actually care about it. Mm-hmm. So we started rallying everyone we could. <laughs> we convinced John Legend to come to Perth, Australia. He flew over. Thank goodness, he's so generous. And uh, he flew over and 30,000 young people came to, to this end of polio campaign event. And that day we got five heads of government. We got David Cameron of Britain, Giuliani of Pakistan, Goodluck Jonathan of Nigeria, Stephen Harper of Canada and Gillard of Australia to stand on stage and commit $118 million for polio eradication. Amazing. Okay. And then Bill Gates agreed to match it. Okay. And, okay. Um, and that's really kind of the genesis, if you will, of, of Global Citizen yeah. because just after that, um, my now wife, Taniella, and I moved to New York and we, um, we started with this big dream. Like we were literally working out of a shoe closet, a broom closet on Lafayette Street and like no money and just like a, a true startup. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and we had this huge dream to see – you know, in the same way that Simon and Garfunkel had, you know, cre- created this commanding presence on the Great Lawn of Central Park yeah. back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, could there be a concert 
that united humanity for the end of extreme poverty during the UN General Assembly meeting, but could we do it with a twist mm -hmm. where you couldn't buy a ticket, you'd have to earn your way in through your social actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how Global Citizen started. And honestly, the first few years were a little crazy. Right. And so that was, that was between 2008, 2012. 2012, right. I understand, was the first, was, was that, new, was the first year. First year. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you mobilize artists to, to well, take part in that? <laughs> that? That year and the first two years, honestly, were a, a bit crazy because okay. like pulling off this event for free on the Great Lawn <laughs> meant that we had to raise all the money because you mm -hmm. couldn't sell tickets, right? Yeah. And so, and it's not cheap on the Great Lawn of Central Park. I can't um, imagine. So firstly, I was introduced um, by a gentleman by the name of Rick Mueller. He introduced me to John Silver, who manages the Food Fighters. And John said, you know, he said, the Great Lawn of Central Park, he said in those days, is the Holy Grail. He said, if you can get the Great Lawn, then all of my artists will perform for free. Mm -hmm. okay. And I'm like, okay, that's a good challenge. <laughs> and so I, um, I reached out to Mayor Bloomberg's office and I said to Mayor Bloomberg's team, you know, I know you haven't granted a Saturday on the Great Lawn since like Bon Jovi and Simon and Garfunkel, but mm -hmm. would you do it in this instance? Because we're going to give away the tickets for free. It's going to drive social action in, achieve in towards the, in those days, it was the, still the Millennium Development go Goals before the Sustainable Development Goals were launched. And we wanted to see if we could actually halve extreme poverty by 2015. And fortunately, Mayor Bloomberg granted us permission. And I went back to John Silver. And this is the funny thing. He's like, oh, no, no. Like, he's, <laughs> yeah, like, he's like, my, my accent. He's like, okay, we'll the Foo Fighters will still perform, but you need to get a headliner. Because okay. he said, it's 60,000 people on the Great Lawn. That's too big. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. And like, so I'm not kidding. This is what literally happened. We were a month and a half out from the festival. We were already in August. And we were still a million and a half dollars short of pulling it off. Okay. And with no headliner. Okay. And so we thought, okay, this is not going to happen. Like I was, all these really generous people, like Larry King hosted a fundraiser for us in LA and a couple of people here. And, but like, it was just, we were just making like not enough progress. And I just thought, okay, you know, that idea, you've probably heard this, like, if you can make it in America, you can make it. So mm -hmm, in my back mm -hmm. of my mind, I kept thinking to myself, I'm going to fail so miserably. <laughs> right. I'm going to like, before it even gets started, yeah. it's not even going to get going. Yeah. And um, this is why I do, I do believe in miracles because literally one day I was in LA and I got a phone call from Sumner Redstone's uh, house and Sumner said, come, come meet me. And I w went over to his house in LA I sat down with him and shared with him the, the vision of what we had to do. And literally mm -hmm. on the spot, he wrote a check for $1.5 million. Wow. And then literally half an hour later, I got a call from Elliot Roberts who said, uh, Neil Young's on the phone from Hawaii. He wants to speak to you. Stop. And I'm not kidding. I drove literally the other side of LA. Mm -hmm. He was on the phone from Hawaii. He said, I hear, I hear about what you think trying to do in Central Park. I'm going to headline. And I'm no. like, wow. And so <laughs> in like, the one day. One day. Wow. Same day. Wow. It was like... It was unbelievable. Wow, okay. And 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 so that was year one. And it was we were so exhausted at the end of it that we'd never thought it was gonna happen again. But the day after year one, I got a phone call from Rob Light, who said he just spoke to Stevie Wonder and he said, Stevie Wonder's gonna headline year two. And I said, Rob, there is no year two. And he said, yeah. There is now. And so like that's really how it it's happened. Amazing. Okay. And um and then from there the momentum started to really build. And um and and it very much 
picked up at a, at a huge rate where millions of citizens were signing on to become global citizens. And, and um, we started to think of ourselves not, not, as a, not as a music festival, but as an advocacy platform where citizens could take action and, and those actions would earn them points and those points uh, would enable them to come to the festival for free, but all of their actions would target world leaders. Yeah, yeah. And those world leaders would be forced to respond yay or nay. Yes, yeah, you know, of course. Very, yeah. very binary. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really become the power of the movement. Um, now, some eight years later, $46 billion has been announced on global citizen stages around the world. And it's gone all around the world now. Um, and the, the organization itself is just like, sometimes I just have to stop and, and just, it's, it's, it is, um, it's incre- yeah. it's incredible, yeah. It, it really is for its first year. Just a you know an unthinkably uh, ambitious <laughs> you know event, uh, an unthinkably sort of ambitious uh, uh, and also quite a radical one. And saying, well, you know, how are you going to get people in in here? Well, it's, we're not going to charge. We're not going to charge for you know pe- people ticket prices. So it, this is all out of the, the goodness of people's hearts and the, and the, you know um, their will to do to do something meaningful. You know, that, that's right. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. The goodness of people's hearts is is the right phrase because I think that everything that has happened since is based on the goodness of people's hearts mm-hmm. which yeah. is again it's, it's radical yeah. it's, it's quite radical you know um, it's, it's amazing and by 2015 I believe you had you had 193 world leaders l- lining up to to agree towards the global sustainability goals is so, that, is that? yeah so what happened was uh, a lady by the name of Amina Muhammad who was at one point the Environment Minister of Nigeria, but she was also appointed by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to orchestrate a plan called the Sustainable Development Goals. And she asked Global Citizen if the Sustainable Development Goals could be launched on our stage in Central Park. And so what happened was that was the year that um, Beyonce and Pearl Jam and Coldplay and Ed Sheeran headlined. And, you know, Every, everyone from Bono through to Richard Branson, through to Malala, through to Michelle Obama, through to Mark Zuckerberg, through to uh, Vice President Joe Biden, through to the, de- the Secretary General himself, through to the Deputy Secretary General. Everyone came on stage that year to announce this incredible proclamation that the world truly could, if we can create enough political will, see an end to extreme poverty, tackle climate change and reduce inequality by 2030. And so that was all announced on our stage in Central Park. And that same year, Chris Martin of Coldplay called up and said he wanted to help us take the festival to a new market every year for the next 15 years. Okay, wow. And, um, and that was a, a really generous, a generous offer because, you know, up until that point we were in New York and he's like, okay, we're going to be, we're going to take this together all around the world. And mm-hmm. the first year it was crazy. We decided to take it to India yeah. um, with the support of, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, we were focused on a big campaign called the Clean India Campaign, which is, it's called Swash Bharat, but it's focused on ending open defecation, um, you know, ensuring that plastics are abated, you know, really focusing on the cleanliness of India. Sanitary conditions. Exactly. And um, so so we launched this this enormous campaign and Coldplay and Jay-Z agreed to headline. It was the first time Coldplay had ever performed in India. And 
what was meant to be a show with you know 60,000 people ended up being close to 150 200,000 people in Mumbai but what was extraordinary was just that millions of, of of citizens across India started taking action in support of clean India people were literally going up to the to the beaches of Mumbai and picking up plastic and earning points for all the trash that they collected and it created this incredible groundswell that gave us a new model of taking the taking citizen action both at a grassroots level and at a systemic level at once. Yeah, so yeah. we could drive both direct action and policy action mm-hmm. um, through the platform, and yeah. that was that was really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Cried Power podcast will explore the UN's 17 Global Goals, a series of objectives that aims to end extreme poverty, reduce inequality, and tackle climate change by 2030. To take action on any of these issues we talk about on the show, go to globalcitizen.org slash crypower and get involved. There's the three categories of the 17 uh, goals, which are human capital, um, gender equality, and I believe is it an environmental environmental uh, sustainability exactly how were those how were those landed upon the, the, the I suppose the seventeen or how how do you prioritize what's 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 most important well the way um, that we look at it is the world agreed upon a plan called the sustainable development goals seventeen goals with one hundred and sixty nine indicators but if you boil all those goals down they really boil down to three big things. Ending poverty, tackling climate change, and reducing inequality. And so, if you if you think about each of those buckets for a second, and how do those buckets play into one another? The first bucket of human capital, which is focused on the eradication of poverty, is really the the health, education, food security, water, sanitation bucket, because that's they are really what you would say in economic terms create the enabling environment for people to lift themselves out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Because the way in which someone in the long term is able to lift themselves out of poverty is they need a good job. But you can't have a good job if you're hungry and you're unhealthy and you're uneducated and you're, you know, in extreme poverty. You know, it's impossible to maintain a job because if you get contract malaria, then you're going to be out of your job for months, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. And so, so really, those those basic um, building blocks of the eradication of poverty are the human capital bucket. Mm-hmm. But people often think of climate change as a completely separate issue, but it's not. Because as the poor graduate out of poverty, they inevitably consume more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we in the West have been consuming more our entire lives. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. And so we often think of, of climate change as as just something that's a Western issue, whereas actually I like to think of it as something that's going to be the biggest challenge for emerging markets, Indonesia, Brazil, Russia, um, South Africa, Nigeria. We have to actually have to twist the way we think about abating climate change. And it's not just about, you know, alternative, sustainable, renewable energy. It's not just about being more conscious about what we eat and what we consume, but it's actually also about how do we make sure that the roughly billion people on this planet who still live in extreme poverty, who want the same economic opportunities that you and I take for granted, how do we make sure that they can be both brought into the economic system, but at the same time do so in a sustainable fashion for everyone? And often, 
the counterintuitive part of all this, and I don't want to geek out too much, is that it comes down to things like intellectual property. Okay. Because when, when nations become rich, they inevitably create patent patents, they create IP law that protect the inventions that have, that have enabled them to grow rich. Yes, yeah. Whether that's in pharmaceuticals, whether that's in um, energy. technology, energy, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, the poor nations, they, they, have a, they have a choice. They can say, okay, we're going to take the industrial route, which mm-hmm. was the route that was taken by the West. Mm-hmm. Or, as the West is trying to tell us, they want our forests to be the lungs of humanity. But how can we maintain our forests be the lungs of humanity while we're taking industrial route? It's impossible. The only way you can leapfrog is through technology. But while we don't own the patents to those technology, unless they're granted to the poor by, as a subsidy. By wealthy nations, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Unless, unless there's some mechanism by which people can participate in the modern economy yes. and leapfrog, yeah. then they're, then ultimately – you know, they're forced to take the industrial route. Yes, yes. In the West, we can't take a holier-than-thou approach to tackling climate change. We have to do so in a very humble way and realize that a billion people want the same opportunities you and I take for granted. You know, how do we create a society where people can all cross that threshold in an inclusive fashion in a way that ultimately is sustainable? Yes, yeah. And so, and the reason why the the third bucket of gender equality is so important is that gender equality really is a cross-cutting issue across everything. Women are more likely to be denied access to quality education. They also um, often drop out of school due to access to menstrual hygiene products. They're often um, not given the same economic opportunities as men. And also, um, the, you know, even the very fact that, that women have to spend hours and hours collecting water every single day in remote parts of this world is both a, both a connection between environmental sustainability and human development. And so we see gender equality as the cross-cutting issue across both big buckets and development and climate change really being two sides of the same coin. Totally. And that collaborative thing, you know, sitting down at the same, with, around the table with, with world leaders, people who are incredibly powerful, really, I suppose, when you, when, Collaborating with them and, and kind of bringing them into the mission and, and, and communicating all of this and what what the potentials are for ameliorating these issues. How, you know, how how do you go about that, or how you know how what does that process look like? I, I always start from the mission. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, and I'm a firm believer that the mission to eradicate extreme poverty is something that unites all of humanity. I think it's above politics. I don't think it's about left or right or centrist. It's about a basic core ideal that I believe is at the heart of everyone, that no person should die for lack of a 30-cent immunization, that no one should suffer needlessly. I really believe that that is at the heart of everyone. And so then it becomes a policy question of how do you get there? And most people believe in the consensus that you have to create an environment for people to lift themselves out of poverty. Um, it's not about a handout. It's about enabling well, the enabling environment for people to do just that. And so, therefore, the building blocks are health, education, water and sanitation, food security, gender equality, and a sustainable environment. And so then you're really having a discussion with a world leader or a private sector leader or a philanthropist about how can they most effectively give towards that outcome. 
what can they contribute either from a policy framework or from an investment framework to actually achieve that. And so in the case of, say, the world leaders, for example, we really think of it in two buckets. You've got the OECD countries, and there are some who are very generous. They have what I would call the bragging rights, the ability to actually lead by example and show others what they're doing. Then there are these sets of nations that are the mid-range. They're giving around 0.35% of gross national income in foreign aid. And then there are, unfortunately, nations like my own Australia, and I'll tell you the story here, that under the conservative prime minister, Tony Abbott, slashed foreign aid dramatically. Tony Abbott um, slashed foreign aid by, by a whopping $12 billion, which was just devastating. And, um, and so you've got nations like my own and others that are unfortunately nowhere near as generous as others. And so we are encouraging those nations to step up. That's the first thing, to give above the median and actually be the most generous nations on this planet. That's the first piece. The second piece is around what can nations that are the poorest nations themselves do, and we call this domestic resource allocation. What percentage of their own GNI do they give towards health, education, water, and sanitation investment? And if the poorest 59 countries increased their own domestic resource allocation by just 4%, that alone is going to unlock $70 billion. So huge amounts of capital available through domestic resource allocation. Um, the third big bucket we focus on is the role of the private sector. And the private sector are increasingly economies of, them, of themselves. The Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500 companies, they have such enormous procurement power that if they, say, purchase from women-owned businesses or if they analyze their supply chains to see how environmentally sustainable they are or if they are willing to look at their labor practices and see how um, either exploitative or productive they are, then these policy decisions that CEOs and, and, and leaders of major corporations can make can have enormous impacts on society. And then the third big bucket, we, sorry, the final big bucket we focus on is the role of philanthropists. There are 2,150 billionaires on the planet with a collective net worth of about $10 trillion. Could you and, just repeat that figure one, one last time? So yeah. So there are 2,150 billionaires on the planet with a collective net worth of about $10 trillion. It is remarkable. Yeah. It's remarkable. And if they all gave at the same rate as Bill and Melinda Gates give, mm -hmm. that alone would release $575 billion in additional capital, which is enough money to finance the sustainable development goals in the 59 poorest countries twice over per year. Now, obviously, there's those that would argue, well, they, they made their wealth, they're entitled to spend it however they see fit. And, you know, there's, there's merit to that argument because, yes, they have discretion um, I also believe no man is an island. So, so I think that we have to consider um, what, are, what, what, what sort of world do we want to create for future generations. But the, what I would say is that there are really practical ways in which philanthropists can do more. The first one is considering how much foundations themselves give. Do they just give the, the minimum legal tax threshold, which is about 5% per annum? while they're mostly earning about 7% in interest rates. So they're actually gaining the size of their foundations. The second way is to consider there's this new big tax structure here in the United States called donor advised funds. 
managed by groups like Fidelity and others. And they were initially set up to encourage um, newly minted billionaires, often from Silicon Valley, to try to get involved in philanthropy. What has happened is that these donor advised funds didn't they they got it they got a tax abatement the moment you put money into these donor advised funds but they didn't have a minimum amount you had to give away per annum and unfortunately every single year 97% of them give away nothing and so there's literally billions of dollars just sitting there that is already designated to go to charity but it's not being put to good use. It's just making wealth managers wealthier. Okay. It's which just, it's kind just of earning interest. In earning interest, I see. Earning yeah. interest. Let's call it 7 or 8% per annum okay. just sitting there compounding. Okay. And so even if we just focused on those donor-advised funds, mm-hmm. that alone is going to lo- unlock tens of billions of dollars yeah. in capital that can be deployed, not just to support your alma mater or a college yeah, fund, yeah, but yeah. actually to do good in this planet. Yeah, and yeah. that's why the issues like climate change, like extreme poverty, there are finances available to invest in them right now. Mm-hmm. We just need to have the right policies in place to unlock. Totally. If you find yourself inspired or angry, this podcast isn't just about talking. It's about making change happen. And you can do that right now. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on these issues. This is Hosier, and you're listening to my Crypower podcast. Global Citizen, um, just, just for, for context, for, context for, for people listening who, who may not have, have, have joined the platform. Um, so the way Global Citizen works is you register and you choose the issues that you care about. Let's say you care about the environment or you care about gender equality or you care about education for everyone on the planet. You can take action on those issues. And we have a team of experts at Global Citizen who are experts on all of those issue areas. And so they'll be designing actions that will have maximum effect because how are you supposed to know you know, whether you should be calling this world leader or that world leader? Absolutely, yeah. Fortunately, we have a team for that, and and their job is to make sure that the actions on the Global Citizen platform have the most effect. So when you go on there and you sign this petition or you send this tweet to this world leader or you pick up the phone and you call this world leader's office, you will know that there's a team in the background who have been spending months and months and months thinking about why that particular world leader should step up at this moment. Let Let me give you an example. A few years ago, um, Stephen Colbert and Global Citizen launched this campaign called the Twitter Invasion of Norway. Right, and it was it was meant it was a bit of fun. And in in one night, we sent hundreds of thousands of tweets to the Prime Minister of Norway. Mm-hmm. And Erna Solberg, who's her name, she called me up a few days later and said, "Come to Oslo." And she, we sat like you and I are sitting here now. And she said. Will you please turn off the tweets? I'm in the middle of a local election and I can't see any tweets from the Norwegian people. I can only see tweets from global citizens. Please turn them off. And I said, well, Madam Prime Minister, I wish I could, but I can't. You have to respond to them Mm -hmm. and um, because it's a democratic platform. And she said, okay, I'll respond. And sure enough, two weeks later, she got up on stage and committed $250 million for girls' education. Fantastic. And that's the power of the movement. You know, this is like democracy on steroids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Often you think you can only vote once every three or four years, but Global Citizen is a platform where you can engage with these issues all year round. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes the platform so powerful. The concert is really using the power of the immense power of music to unite humanity at key moments and provide that platform. 
but the platform itself is year round. You can take action all year round in okay. support of issues that you care about. Okay, I've, I've one or two. I've one or two thoughts. I was going to just. I suppose I, I would ask ask you two questions. One, what is the most challenging part of it, or you know, either um, sitting down, or what's what's the greatest obstacle? And then I wouldn't mind asking you what's your favorite. Or what you're, what you're, what you're most proud, of, you know, what you're, what you're proudest of in in the last few years. But, but first of all, yeah. So what? What's the hardest? What's the hardest part of 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 that? What's the most challenging? I think um, the hardest part is realizing that no matter how, no matter how many global citizens there are, and and the world is a small place, but it's still an incredibly diverse place, and geopolitics is still very complicated. You know, when I was in Mexico yesterday, you know, I was learning all about, you know, the mandate of the newly elected, uh, relatively populist government in Mexico and their position on poverty alleviation and their strategy as opposed to the strategy of governments before them. And you have to, you know, be clear-eyed and analyze, you know, what role can citizens really play who feel so disenfranchised sometimes from that political process? What role can they really play in ensuring greater accountability and transparency to combat corruption, ensuring violence against women, which has been a huge issue in Mexico, is abated? And what role can they play in ensuring the, you know, those that have been part of the urban drift into the major cities of Mexico can be part of the economic system? And so I think that every time we're in a new market, I ha- we have to ask those basic questions again. When we're in South Africa last year for Mandela's 100th anniversary, local activists said, you know, we are seeing young girls who are dropping out of school simply because they do not have access to menstrual hygiene products. And they, and they had this campaign called It's Bloody Time. And they said, could Global Citizen use your platform to push for this? And so we did. We made it one of our number one actions. And sure enough, we got the president, Cyril Ramaphosa, on stage at the festival to announce a huge 169 million rand commitment to it's, its a, bloody time so, to provide so, menstrual hygiene products fantastic. to thousands of schools across South Africa. Fantastic. And so every context is different. And I think, you know, when there's still 100 and, 193 member states of the United Nations, that's a massive undertaking to kind of grapple with how do we focus our energy, our time, and make sure that we're asking the right questions all the time. I think that's by far the hardest challenge. I think that the the corollary of that, the thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that the platform is being used as an amplifying tool for amazing activists like those in South Africa. Like the fact that young activists around the world are reaching out to global citizens and saying, you know, I'm, I've, been, I've been championing this issue. Like, let's say I've been championing issues like trying to end plastic pollution in the Philippines, but I didn't know how I could really convince our mayors to adopt a better recycling program. Or I, or, you know, I've, I'm desperate to see, um, you know, sanitary napkins for kids in schools across South Africa. Or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm campaigning to end child marriage, you know, in India. You know, these are really practical legislative challenges that advocates around the world care about day in and day out. And the fact that they can turn to global citizen and see that they're a platform of millions of citizens who will proudly stand alongside them and say, you know what? I love that you're championing that. I'm going to send that tweet with you. I'm going to sign that petition with you. And I'm going to 
it was so cool last year in South Africa. Our global citizens made so many phone calls to the Department of Education and Department of Health in South Africa. They had to pull their phone lines out of the sockets because there were just too many phone calls coming in. And that's the power of a movement. Yeah. And that's what makes me excited. Yeah, and there's global power there. Is it hard at times holding a world leader to account or how, how to ensure that those goals are met or that, that, that promises are, are kept? Is that, is, that, is, that a, is that a huge challenge? So what we do is um, we take an approach firstly where we tell up front every world leader who makes an announcement on a global citizen stage that we're going to publish a report every six months tracking their progress. So um, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the auditing agency, worked with us to establish a framework, an auditing framework to audit every single commitment the world leaders make. And that framework measures the following. It says, firstly, they have to, we have to make sure it's a new commitment, not just something they were going to announce anyway. Secondly, it has to be independently verifiable. So someone externally, not the government or not the commitment maker, has to be able to independently say, okay, I can see the impact and I can measure it. And thirdly, we ask this question called the but-for test, which is but for global citizens' actions would have, the, would have the commitment already happened. And if it would have, then we don't count it. Um, or what we do, we call ourselves in that case a sector applauder, where we just applaud someone else's great work. But if global citizens did make the critical difference, as in, but for their actions, it wouldn't have happened, so but for their actions, it wouldn't have happened, then we're proud to celebrate that. And that's what happens on stage. And then six months later, we issue the first report. Six months after that, we issue the second report. And we keep going years and years and years until the commitments are delivered. We have a full-time auditing team in our Johannesburg, London, and New York offices whose entire jobs it is to make sure those world leaders follow through on their commitments. And when they don't, we publish it. So on our board, we have extraordinary people like Randall Lane, the editor of Forbes. We have tons of journalists who actually will publish it in the public domain if the world leaders don't follow through on it. What's really amazing, to give you one example, a few years ago, the Danish government wanted to come on Global Citizen Stage and and they were at the same time making a huge slash in foreign aid. And so we said, you can't come on Global Citizen Stage. And we did it all privately because we didn't want to embarrass them. But then the foreign minister tweeted us mm-hmm. and said, I'm disappointed that Global Citizen isn't letting me on this stage. <laughs> and we're like, that's a silly move. Because, <laughs> yeah, and so we, we just replied publicly and said, well, the reason is this. And sure enough, the next day on the front page of the Danish newspaper yeah. was, was the, I mean, the, the politician news. at the time looked a bit silly. Yeah. Now, fortunately, since then, because of that, they've, they've actually increased their foreign aid again. Okay. So it shows that public pressure does work. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so I think that, um, you know, we always try to take a, a very dignified approach. We don't want to embarrass anyone. Mm-hmm. We don't want to shame anyone. Mm-hmm. We want people to feel as though the aspiration of making the world a better place, of addressing these social ills, is something everyone should celebrate. Yes. Yeah. And our platform is just a tool to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, fant- I'm actually, that's fascinating. It's what, really wonderful to hear. Um, and also, these are people you, you want to work with in the future. When they oh, do want to sit, you know. The world is a small place. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. someone who might be a, a junior minister today will be the prime minister tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. Totally. <laughs> tell me about it. Um, and can I just, just one last question, and then, you know, just to leave it on something hopeful and, and exciting, is something that you're looking forward to in the future or something that you're, you're super excited about now? Well, the thing I'm most excited about now is I'm convinced that it, at key at key moments in history, humanity has come together to achieve extraordinary things. It, it happened super rarely. It happened back in 1985 with Live Aid, and it happened again in 2005 with Live Aid. 
And we've been working with the Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Amina Mohammed, to see that 2020 could be our generation's moment. So we're planning the most ambitious campaign Global Citizen has ever embarked upon in support of the Sustainable Development Goals. And the campaign is called Global Goal Live. We're going to take the festival to six events all around the world in five continents. Our goal is to make it the, 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 the largest cause broadcast event in, in history. But more importantly than that, our focus is on that $350 billion financing gap to achieve the global goals in the 59 poorest countries. And so we're focused on how can the private sector step up? How can government step up? How can philanthropists step up? How can the artist community unite and be creative unlike ever before? How can amazing collaborations happen? How can citizens take more actions than ever before all around the world? And so that's what I'm super excited about because I do believe no matter how unhopeful this world can feel sometime, you know, the fact is that, yes, ex the progress towards eradication of extreme poverty has been slowing and in some parts of the world even reversing. And yes, while action on climate change has been growing, we know that over the last decade, carbon emissions have continued to rise. Despite all of that, the world does have a plan to eradicate extreme poverty and to tackle climate change. We just need the political will to achieve it. So 2020 has to be our year. It's got to be our generation's moment, and I couldn't be more passionate about it. Hugh Evans, I couldn't tell you how uplifting and fascinating and just, yeah, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so, so much for, for coming in. And, and Thank you for having me. me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. is made in association with Global Citizen, a movement of activists all over the world who are using their collective voice to end extreme poverty by 2030. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on any of the issues we talk about on this show and earn tickets to gigs all over the world by signing petitions, writing emails, or sending tweets to world leaders. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Crypower podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Hosier, and this is Cry Power.